and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivett Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we discuss climate as a security issue, the prices oil companies will pay for wind permits, the big freeze in Texas, and we speak to author and fellow podcaster Catherine Wilkinson. Plus, we have music from Desiree Dawson. Thanks for being here. I don't know about you guys in terms of how 2021 is shaping up. I mean, there's like good stuff, there's bad stuff at the beginning of the year. I remember Paul Dickinson, you wouldn't even say Happy New Year. You just said welcome to the new year, which I thought was a <laughs> unique way to begin the year looking at how it's going. But one thing I've noticed is that there's so much going on with climate that it is a struggle to include it all in these podcasts. How do you think we're doing? Absolutely brilliantly. I mean, just, you know, almost impossibly well. Um, I think of all the different ways it could go. And yeah, it's just knocking it out the park completely. And you? What do you think, Christiana? Well, so um, so we have someone who does the wonderful job of collecting once a week uh, news on climate progress. And what I have notice is that the list continues to get longer. It's a big list. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah, it's a big list. And it's um, moving, you know, into more and more sp different spaces, um, which is quite exciting. So a little bit difficult to pick and choose which ones we want to focus on, but I think we have actually chosen for today. We have, indeed. So, so this is a slightly roundabout way of informing the listener. We're going to be doing this slightly differently from now on. Each week, the three hosts, Christiana, Paul and myself, will pick one key thing, one key data point, one key story, something that is unfolding in the world at the moment in the area of climate. Could be outrageous, it could be something that's giving us a cause for optimism, and we're going to bring it to the group and we're going to discuss it. And if there are key issues that you, the listener, would like us to bring up, you can mm. let us know. But this week we have come ready with our facts from the last seven days that we want to share with each other. So who wants to go first? You are going to go first, Tom, because you're going to talk about the most you. serious thing in the world, which is security. <laughs> All right. So I did something very unusual today. I sat down and I watched 90 minutes of a Security Council meeting. And I don't think I've ever done that before. People who might have watched my TED Talk will know that I famously found UN meetings extremely boring when I worked there. So I didn't do that much. But I found this one extremely interesting. The issue of climate change was raised today by Boris Johnson at the Security Council, and it was it was launched initially by an address from David Attenborough that was extremely moving. He said that the threats that we now face in the world are not threats that divide us. They're actually threats for the first time that should unite us. If we recognize climate as the security threat that it is, then we may yet act in time and act proportionately. The Prime Minister then launched into a de debate with the various members who were there at the time, including the US and France and Niger and both the permanent representatives and the non-permanent representatives who were there. There's usually 10 to 12 members of the Security Council. Antonio Guterres gave a very stirring speech on climate. Johnson himself absolutely came out guns blazing. I mean, I know on this podcast we've been slightly eviscerating at times at the flip-flopping nature of our current prime minister, but on climate, he seems to be really going the distance and digging in. And I think he really has to have credit for this. I mean, he said today that the UN Security Council is tasked with confronting the gravest threats to global peace and security, and that's exactly what climate change represents, from the communities uprooted by extreme weather and hunger to warlords capitalizing on the scramble for resources. Our warming planet is driving insecurity. 
Uh, and he pointed out that unlike most threats to security, we know what the solution to this one is. It's driving emissions down to zero, net zero by 2050, and dealing with the impacts of climate. So there are reasons, I would say, for both optimism and outrage in this. The first thing, reason for outrage, I would say, is that this has been raised again and again at the Security Council. And we kind of need to temper our enthusiasm for the fact that it's coming up now with the fact that it also came up in 2007, 2011, 2018, 19, 20. So it's been there a bunch of times. So while I'm feeling optimistic that there was a proper debate today about climate change as a national security threat, we have to find the determination to actually make that more of an issue now than it has been in the past. And the other reason for outrage, of course, is that the reason that this is now so high on the agenda is because it's become so bad. Of the 20 countries ranked most vulnerable to rising global temperatures, 12 are already in conflict and 16 million people a year are displaced due to extreme weather. This has become a massive driver of global insecurity and conflict, and it's great it's being discussed, but we now have to make it count and turn it into real policy. So that's the big thing that happened for me this week. What do you think? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, when you speak about national security, um, the armies of several countries have been very, very aware of this. The U.S. Army yeah. has been aware. The U.K. Um, have been very aware of the fact that this is a threat to national security or rather to international <laughs> security because it's threatening um, everyone. And so, as you say, Tom, it is quite frustrating that this topic has been brought up uh, by member states to the Security Council uh, quite a few times over the past, what, 13 years? And it always stays at the level of a discussion. There has never been any resolution, any decision yeah. taken on the part of the Security Council about any of this. They, you know, in the best of all cases, um, they take it under advisement or they take note. Um, but, but that's about it. It doesn't go any farther than that because the Security Council doesn't see it as their purview to, uh, to wander into climate change issues. Hmm. Here's the thing. Okay, what what is a government, right? What is it? It's it's uh, going a bit back upstream there, Paul. Somebody somebody said like, uh, what is it? A nation is a dialect with an army and a navy, right? So it, states are defined by their militaries in some regards, except for Costa Rica, which fantastically is defined by not having a military. But all the rest are defined by their their kind of armed forces uh, historically, um, and you know, like the the central idea behind a state, the Leviathan, this giant creature, this sort of superhuman, is that it protects us, that mm. we give up some of our personal individual freedom to the state. This is Hobbes' notion of the Leviathan. And then the state in turn protects us. But the duty of the citizen to the state lasts as long and only as long as the state is able to protect us. Now, Climate change is essentially the principal danger to our states. And so it's taking a long time. Yeah. But of course, the armed forces are beginning to realize that their job is not to, you know, get more warplanes or, or, or aircraft carriers or submarines or tanks or something, that their job is to protect the people from climate change. And that means that they've got to radically review what are the risks to the nation and they, they've got to change it. I think propaganda, undermining public confidence in climate change, is 
a threat to national security. I think that's sedition. Uh, You've also got, you know, just huge amounts of money being spent on weapons. I mean, the Pentagon's the extreme example. $721 billion last year, $720 billion being spent on military hardware, essentially in a world where there's a lot of military hardware and there's nuclear weapons. Surely it's time for the militaries of the world to say, okay, friends, you know, for however long it takes, next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we are going to spend 10, 20, 30, 40, 50% of our annual budget on dealing with this problem. And we are going to cut to the root of the disinformation that's causing our democracies to fail to respond to the problem. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a very good point. And, and, and Christian, just go back to what you said about not being a resolution. I mean, in, in your analysis, if the Security Council picks up an issue and debates it but doesn't reach a resolution, does that have any meaning at all? Does that move us forward in any way? Yes, but not enough. Right. Not, um, the, the Security Council, you know, does, does take up many issues. but it Moves has... it forward in narrative but not in practice. Yeah, uh, and as we know, the Security Council is really ridden with, um, with paralysis on most issues. Um, and it's actually very sad that this issue that, as, uh, as David Attenborough has reminded everyone, this is a common threat, a collective threat to everyone, that, you know, the Security yeah. Council has a problem siding with one side or the other in military conflicts is, you know, a little bit more understandable, if you will, uh, because some or all of them are sometimes engaged in these military conflicts. But but this is a threat to every single one of the uh, member states of the United Nations. And so the fact that it is not recognized as a collective universal threat to the economy of the world, to peace in the world, to the living conditions on the world. It's just very sad that it's taken this long and that it just does not meet with the importance um, and the, the, the type of deep analysis that it could and should have. Yeah. And I mean, it was really, the, the other thing, I know we need to move on to the next issue, but um, the other thing I thought was really interesting, John Kerry spoke at length and, um, and he went to great lengths to say that the US was now on an irreversible path to net zero by 2050. I mean, he actually said irreversible by any future demagogue were his exact words. But of course, <laughs> but of course it's not, right? It's still executive action. There's no legislation. It's entirely reversible by a future president. And it was, I thought, a real insight. I mean, it may be irreversible due to the underlying economic trends and the shift towards cheaper, you know, that renewable energy is cheaper. But from a policy perspective, that battle is not yet won. And I thought it was an interesting insight into what he's having to emphasize when he speaks to world leaders, that irreversibility is going to be the thing that gives him credibility. And right now it's not there. Hmm. It's only when you said that battle is not yet won. I mean, this is actually the kind of the point about the um, the, the military and the security services. They, they probably, insofar as they can make sure that the public get clear information so they can make decisions, they, they could intervene. They should intervene. I'll give you an example. Uh, and it's the next topic. You know, the power cuts in Texas, an absolute disaster for the state of Texas. Our hearts go out to all the people. Uh, You know, some citizens died even in the terrible cold. It's a terrible situation. I saw um, Tucker Carlson on Fox News kind of blaming renewable energy. 
Um, that's not correct. Uh, and that kind of intervention is part of winning the battle. Uh, should people really be allowed to go out and say that kind of thing without being challenged by the security services if they're misinforming hmm. the citizens? If, 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 if somebody went on TV and said, you know, don't worry about Al-Qaeda, we can relax, you know, we can reduce all our security at airports, that would be, you know, disinformation that's undermining society, security. Okay. Just one thing I want to say about Texas. Um, in this tragedy... Um, it's not the windmills, by the way, and I'll tell you why, because Denmark is the home of windmills. And I was just looking at the average global temperatures for Texas and Denmark. Uh, Texas goes from 37 to 3 degrees on average each year, and Copenhagen in Denmark goes from 21 degrees to minus 2 average each year. So it's fully 5 degrees average colder in Denmark and all the windmills work. You can make them work in cold circumstances. What this is about is running everything, and it wasn't just the wind, it was other parts of the energy grid, running them extremely low uh, uh, investment basically and the shame of that is texas has a gdp of 1.88 trillion dollars it has gdp per capita of sixty-five thousand dollars. so the reason why the energy grid isn't working is because of something that galbraith an economist called private affluence and public squalor an inability for the state to really support the people with these essentials like electricity that is reliable and that's because of underinvestment it's not wind energy and end of speech well it's it's because of the lack of investment to um to be able to foresee that there might be those extreme temperatures as well as the fact that texas has its own grid that is not interconnected with anyone else and so that of course makes yeah. you incredibly vulnerable uh when you have to uh rely on your own grid without any um, interconnectivity. Um, but if I may, I wanted to just get back to um, Prime Minister Johnson's speech at the Security Council, because what is just very difficult, continues to be very difficult to understand, is that on the one hand, we know, as Boris Johnson has said, and everyone else there, John Kerry, David Attenborough, that Climate change per se is the greatest threat to us. And mm -hmm. at the same time, holding this, the, the, a different reality in equal standing, addressing climate change is such a huge opportunity. So it is ironic that in this week in which Boris Johnson says climate is our greatest threat, and it is the same week in which major oil companies have bid absolutely staggering prices to secure the rights to build offshore wind farms off the shore of England and Wales. Hmm. Um, why? Because it is an it is a growing opportunity. So you have you know companies like BP and Total um, that have secured just incredible rights. And this is all, you know, happening within the same country. This is the British PM saying that at Security Council, but it is Britain actually going forward with these um, with these auctions and oil traditional oil majors bidding way beyond any price that anyone has ever bid in full realization that that is the direction of travel. So you have these two competing realities, right? Two competing realities. Yes, climate is the greatest threat. And yes, addressing climate change through the technologies that we know are the solutions is the greatest opportunity. And so why, why are we still having those two realities? Why haven't we moved forward much more courageously and much more 
um, with much more decision and determination into the solution space. Well, so Christian, do you not see? I mean, to, I, I, I hear what you're saying there. Um, do you not think that they they are both components of a new reality that has a reason, a, a, that has a push and a pull associated with it, and both play different roles in that transition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. what you just described there, no, are, definitely, yeah. and and yeah. that's you know the the definition of a transition, right? In a transition, you have evidence of the old and evidence of the new, but you don't have primacy of either one yet. Yes. My point is, why are <laughs> we still it. stuck in the yet? Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. Okay. Yes, of course we have evidence of the past and the present, but frankly, we are so running out of time. We are so running out of time. And I'm frankly, you losing patience with this transition thing, transition of, you know, energy generation, transition of the energy transition, the energy transformation. Yes, yes, yes. But Let's get on with it. <laughs> no, I hear you, Christian. And I think, I mean, what the, the, the issue you brought, which I, I think really illustrates this, is the money that these oil and gas majors are now prepared to spend for these, these permits. They're, they're, they're desperate to find ways to spend money in a manner that is productive, that generates a return, that is renewable, that's part of the future, that helps them transition their companies. It's future-proof, dude. They know there's yeah. not going to be a carbon tax. You know, as Christiana always says, the wind yeah. doesn't send you a bill. And it's gonna, it's gonna, and and they can see the 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 consistent return going into the future. It's going to be so valuable. We are just at the beginning of realizing how valuable those types of assets of being able to build wind turbines, harvest these natural renewable resources that don't send you a bill. And and just to illustrate that point, um, another amazing piece of news this this week is that um, the there has been an investment in um, in Denmark that goes way beyond any other investment that has been made into renewable energy, and it's called Power to X Facility. Now, the yes, amazing I thing about that. this, this is all yeah. offshore wind turbines, and they are being invested in not necessarily to produce electricity, but to, pr- to use the electricity as the raw material to produce green ammonia. And why do they want green ammonia? Because they want to use it in the agriculture sector as CO2-free green fertilizer and for the shipping industry to use it as green fuel. Now, you know, just think of the ramifications of that because we're used to thinking of renewable energy as simply the source of energy generation, electricity, clean electricity. But the fact is that clean electricity is not necessarily the the desired result. It is an input. It is a raw material to so much more than that can be done to get to other sectors that are more difficult. So, you know, it's it's a chain. It's a virtuous chain reaction here. And I'm just I'm I, I don't know. I'm losing my patience with the chain reactions that go in the other direction. All right. They're on warning. (laughs) Be afraid. In a good way, but afraid. All right. So I'm going to turn to the interview. Anything else anyone wants to say this part of the podcast? 
Oh, just one thing. I mean, yeah. you know, the, this this electricity, this renewable electricity thing is not just about replacing our electricity grid. It's about massive, it's about replacing fossil fuels. I mean, peak heat in the United Kingdom is five times the out, total electricity output in terms of, of energy, right? So we've got so much renewable energy that we're going to build way beyond the existing requirements of the existing electricity grid as we start to take out uh, fossil fuels. It's huge, what, can you, can, what do you say amount. about peak heat? I didn't understand that. Peak heat, so the amount of energy used when when everything on the UK is is at peak, like when we're you know in the coldest yeah, yeah, part yeah. of winter when we got all the heating on, that energy at the peak is five times the total capacity of the current electricity system, or four times. So you know there's a huge amount more electricity coming. Wow. Okay, that's amazing. Lots of lots of ammonia created by uh, Danish windmills is probably what's going to be kind of keeping you warm on a chilly night in 2025. And maybe some hydrogen for getting us around. Yeah. Uh, hydrogen probably more uh, hydrogen than ammonia thank you for correcting me it's always good to have someone who knows just a little tiny bit more about the science <laughs> that's the role i try to play in your life paul i'm sure you enjoy <laughs> so this week we have a great conversation with Catherine wilkinson uh now Catherine is a good friend known her for many years she's a climate author a teacher a strategist a feminist committed to nurturing what she terms a feminist climate renaissance. Her books in, on climate include the bestseller All We Can Save that came out just at the end of last year that she co-edited with Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, The Drawdown Review from 2020, The New York Times bestseller Drawdown from 2017 that I'm sure everyone has heard of, and Between God and Green from 2012. Uh, she was the principal writer and editor-in-chief at Project Drawdown, where she led the organization's work to share climate solutions with audiences around the world. And All We Can Save, the most recent book, is an anthology of 60 essays, poems, and original artwork from women in the climate movement that we're going to talk about. Uh, she gave a brilliant TED Talk that I would really recommend, and this is a great conversation. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Here's Catherine, and we will be back afterwards for some more discussion. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism to celebrate um, your book, All We Can Save. First of all, I love the title. And there are many things that are unusual about this book. The first is that it's a collection of writings of all women that is interspersed with poetry. And all of that deserves going into more depth. But I actually... Have, have been chomping at the bit to ask you what I think is, the for me, the crux that I really want to hear from you. What did the two of you, you and Ayana, your co-author or co-editor, what did you learn from writing this book, from speaking to all of the authors that you did not know before? Mm. Well, thank you all for having me. Um... I learned so much in the process of doing this book. Um, I'm thinking about sort of how to how to boil down. Um, one of the one of the sort of insights for me has been actually about the movement, which is we originally set out in this book to gather about 20 essays, do a book of about, of about 60 or 70 thousand words. We, we ended up with 41 essays, 17 poems, original art. And at, at, at that point, our, our editor said, you're done. <laughs> you cannot add anything else, right? Um, but even at a book of almost 140,000 words, there's so much that's left out. There are so many perspectives that are not present, even with 60 voices included. And 
So I've been thinking a lot about kind of the abundance that Ayana and I imagine for the movement and especially for women who are leading in this movement and the realities of scarcity at the moment. And I think that just hit me in a in a more sort of experiential and visceral way. Um, and that that is a really challenging place to be, right? Where folks are underpaid, undersupported, overburdened, trying to make magic happen, uh, you know, oftentimes as a side hustle on nights and weekends. Um, and so I think the process just really deepened my determination um, to try to forge a, a different future for the experience of being in this movement. Um, and I think it also made more visceral for me as well, the ferocious love that is the through line of so much of the work that people are doing that, you know, over here may look like research science, over there may look like policy advocacy, but at the end of the day, it is about this incredible conviction and and love for a just and livable future. Um, and a commitment to forging it. Exactly. Um, this capacity to have radical imagination come together with the day-to-day -day heavy lifting and strategic work that has to be done. And that's an incredible art form, right? To, to be able to be effective in the now that is so very out of step with the future that we are imagining and to keep nurturing that vision, um, even when the news is bad, right? Even when it feels like the boulder mm. is is rolling back down the mountain. Well, you, you use the word heavy lifting, the daily heavy lifting that we all have to do. Um, and it, it brings me to um, suggest that I think one of the things that came forward to me is both for the two of you, but also for all of the authors of the essays, such an writing it, but also their real lives and their commitment to what they're doing is such a challenge and yet also such a celebration of a new emotional muscle mm. that we're all being called to exercise that is actually quite new for us, quite new, this emotional muscle. How, how would you describe that emotional muscle? Mm. It is sort of hilarious, actually, when you think that we ever thought we could address this challenge with only the powers of the prefrontal cortex, right? Why, why would we leave the whole of, of the human superpowers to the side? Um, but in the, in the first essay in the book, The Begin, we call it, Ayana and I frame up kind of how we think about transformational climate leadership in this moment, um, which we think is both more sort of stereotypically or characteristically feminine, but also more committedly feminist in its commitment to equality and, and justice. Um, but one of those critical characteristics is the integration of, of head and heart, um, is showing up to this work in our human wholeness with all of the things that stir up when you have eyes wide open 
on this planet in this moment, right? You you can't sort of watch all of this and not have grief and not have fear or rage, but also courage and determination and right. And it's so it's to me, so much of it is about integration. Mm. So I get really excited and I, Christiana, I think you have been such an amazing leader in this about bringing more of a, of a human wholeness and, and openness to this work. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for leaders like you. I think about Mary Robinson also that have showed us that we can lead in this movement in this way. Um, and, and it's, and it's more effective. Probably that we can and we must. <laughs> we can and we must. Yeah. But I, I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of regrets, but I do regret, I think, particularly earlier in my career, the ways in which I, I bought into the idea or thought I sort of had to play by these rules that said, you've got to check some of that at the door, right? Um, you can't be taken seriously and recite poetry, right? You can't, you, you, you know, I, I, when I did my TED Women talk, one of the curators said, you need to take the emotion out of this. Wow. wow. Are you serious? I'm serious. I think they, they have also <laughs> learned that that's probably not an added value. <laughs> but, and that's the thing, right? I mean, we sort of had um, so much emotionless climate communication for so many years, and we know that hasn't worked, but it's also not, you know, I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't stand up and speak for 13 minutes about the core of something I care about um, and pretend that that's just about facts and figures. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. We're with you. We're totally with you on that one, Catherine. (laughs) (laughs) Can can I jump in and ask a question? Because it's it's so wonderful, this platform you've built. And you've talked so much about, you know, the construction of a platform, the responsibility to pass the mic, the emergence of of these new leaders and 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 from what you just said then it's it's so impressive to see the quality of the emerging leadership and the commitment and the dedication of all these women who are coming forward i'd love to hear you talk a bit about the climate movement and the the health of the climate movement from a leadership perspective because it seems that there's lots of things going on there there's real bright spots and there's potentially things that are stuck that, you know, for maybe understandable reasons that need to now be allowed to move forward and space needs to be made for this new leadership to emerge, while at the same time, you know, providing the right scaffolding and support structures to allow it to kind of emerge in a way that is sustained and sustaining. So I'd just love to have you reflect on what you've seen on the climate movement overall mm. and how these young leaders sort of fit into that, what space there is and and, and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, to me, it's so... It's so exciting, kind of the flowering of climate leadership that is happening. And and frankly, young folks who are kind of claiming their right to be part yeah. of this movement, part of shaping the future, part of saying what is wrong and what needs to be made right and how. Um, and that all leaves me feeling like just fired up. (laughs) Um, And then when we look at things like where philanthropic funding in the climate movement goes and how little of that is going to 
organizations or campaigns or projects led by Black leaders, Indigenous leaders, other leaders of color. Um, We see gender gaps as well. We see it in UN negotiations. We see it in media coverage of the crisis. We see it basically in every decision-making space where climate decisions are being made. We are seeing a suppression or exclusion of certain leaders um, and an over-representation of others. Um, And we need everyone, right? We need the biggest, strongest team possible. But when we don't have, we have the biodiversity of leadership that we need, but we are inequitable in terms of how we support it, embrace it, listen to it, follow it. Um, And I, I think a lot about the need for a practice of deep listening. But Tom, I feel I, f- I feel excited about the shift, right? We're, we're clearly not where we need to be yet, um, but I, I do think we're headed in that direction. Thank you. And can I jump in? Paul, I, I know you're chomping at the big two, but um, we would agree with you that we're headed in the right direction. I would love to know from you, Catherine, can you put your finger on why, how, what, how, how did, because we were headed in such a bad direction for a while, um, do yeah. you, can, can you identify an inflection point, an inflection mm-hmm. thought, an inflection insight, an inflection moment that you, you know, will look back from, you know, several years from now and go, aha, that was the moment. Mm. So we did we did an episode in our first season of A Matter of Degrees called Are We at a Breakthrough Moment? Um, because we really wanted to grapple with this question. And we focused that episode on the moment of the Sunrise Movement sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office as this kind of tipping point moment in terms of the trajectory of a social movement. Um, so that's when all of a sudden we started talking about the Green New Deal, but maybe more important than the words Green New Deal were the intersections of how we can be multi-solving for our entangled crises, right? And, and that that is the way we should be approaching this challenge, um, seeing that the climate crisis and growing inequality and racial violence, these are all outgrowths of the same sort of root system. And so we need to be addressing issues in the root system um, and and solving concurrently for those things. Um, But I think now I also look back on the migration of Joe Biden uh, to becoming, you know, sort of a a climate candidate, which is not where things started in the primaries, but setting that stake in the ground for the U.S. of 100% clean electricity by 2035, that was sort of an unthinkable stake for him to put in the ground, actually. And I think that happened because of some great research, right, and the evolution of solutions to the point that that was sort of a 
a physically possible reality. And then you had this incredible grassroots momentum, right? Activists, bird dogging candidates everywhere they showed up on the campaign trail. And then the the kind of peer, really the peer pressure, right? Um, from from Inslee, from Warren, from others, and the way that these sort of different intervention points, different pressure points moved things, um, moved things forward. So I think that 100% by 2035 planting of, of that flag, um, was quite a, quite a watershed moment. Hmm. (laughs) Um, I, I love the, um, your, your, your comments about how, this movement is about being integrated and holistic. And for for all our listeners, your podcast is completely brilliant. Um, uh, you know, a matter of degrees. Uh, I'm I've just been raving to you uh, before we started about your episode on cleaning up the carbon mess and and the wee beasties in microorganisms and your ability <laughs> to communicate huge complexity really simply is fantastic. But I am gonna um, just go back a little bit to this theme about. I loved what you said about these integrated crises, and I think that that's such a great phrase and, and, and an area where where I'm, I'm I'm more and more fascinated. But it actually took me back to uh, in 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 my organisation in say 2003 to about 2005, mm-hmm. we were communicating with the chair of the board of the 500 biggest companies in the world, and it was between 99.8 and 99.6 percent men. So it's basically apartheid. It was like mm-hmm. four, between 499 and 498 men and one or two women over over a three-year period. Now, it's a tiny bit better now, but I mean, fundamentally, the power structures of our world are just male, M-A-L-E, male. That's what they are. And I just wondered, you know, to what degree do you think, how can society sort of like just call that out, you know, and sort of kind of me too, you know, like my multinationals all run by men also? Yeah. I mean, I think we just have to, we have to be honest about it. Right. Um, Mm. I think all of a sudden folks have gotten comfortable with, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion, um, which mostly we talk about as let's bring some other folks in. But it also means that somebody has to step back. Right. right? Um, And I actually think I think Bill McKibben sort of role modeled this, not intentionally, but really beautifully um, when he stepped kind of stepped back from his more, you know, his sort of closer engagement with 350.org because he recognized that so many people were saying, oh, Bill's org, Bill's work, right? Mm. And he was saying, it's not my work. It's, you know, now the team is led by um, primarily some really incredible women. But I think he recognized that until he created that space, they still weren't going to be getting the credit they deserved. They still weren't going to be getting sort of the the the, the credence um, that that they deserved, and and people would be sort of looking looking to him. Um, so I think that was a beautiful example of what it can look like to do that really intentionally, but also to vocalize it. Right. So it becomes a learning moment beyond just, okay, that's, that's, that's great for, for 350. Um, but he, he wrote a really beautiful kind of statement about that, that I think stands out for its uniqueness, frankly. Um, but I think presents, um, presents a really interesting question mark to, to sort of sit with, which is, 
you've got a boardroom table. There are only so many seats that can be pulled up, right? So who's who's going to step back? Um, yeah. who, who's going to say, yeah. actually, I don't need that grant money um, and it should go, it should go somewhere else, right? The, these are sort of the, I think the harder, the harder kinds of questions, but the ones that, that we need to, you know, we, we, we need to be, to be asking, um, in terms of kind of going back to, to what I was saying about imagining a movement of abundance, but grappling with the realities of scarcity now, um, that there are a limited number of slots in an, in an anthology, a limited number of dollars in climate philanthropy. Hopefully that changes radically, right? but, but so how we get to more equitable allocation kind of within, within the, the status quo. But but it's great to see this called out in in big companies, big investors, in government as well. I think it's you know it's it is a it's a just a, a shockingly you know male world still yeah. at the top of so many organizations. And what I I mean I'm so surprised actually that we have as much research as we have that when women are leading when there is gender parity in leadership climate policy outcomes are better yeah there is more excuse protection me, of land all <laughs> policy decisions are better not only all climate. policy <laughs> totally totally but i've just been i've just been looking looking through the 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 laundry list of yeah. of studies about this right that this is a pretty nascent thing that we're studying and the evidence is so clear. Um, and you're absolutely right, Christiana, it is across the board, right? We, we get to, we get to better decisions. Um, Catherine, you know, the, the first time that that really, really hit was actually drawdown, which you have all been, uh, dedicated so much of your life to those, you know, solutions to climate that were listed there. And then the, the whack me in the face solution that, you know, really made me turn around was the conclusion that educating women and girls, bringing more women to the decision tables was actually the number one solution to climate change. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was such a, somehow I had it in my gut, but to see it out there so clearly in Drawdown, it was for me one of my big, big aha moments. So Mm. thank thank you for that also. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But can I just take you back to a previous question? Because when I asked you what, you know, a few years from now, or in fact, even now, when you look back, which moment would you recognize as the inflection point moment? Mm. And I draw your attention to the fact that you told me the sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office, mm. and then you argued quite eloquently, you know, how that really um, accelerated awareness. But I would argue that's in the United States. I would love to hear from you the equivalent of, because I think this Mm -hmm. awakening and this, you know, change in mood and in commitment and ferociousness, as as you call it, which I love, um, is also happening around the world. And so I would love to hear your quick diagnosis of, is is there a moment as clear as the Pelosi sit-in? Is there a moment, a place that you would pinpoint as being the the birth of the transformation. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really important 
to to note that with right that was sort of this incredible expression of the youth climate justice movement in the US in the in the context of this incredible constellation of organizing work that is happening ar- around the world um and the one that's coming to my mind in this moment um is Greta's first Davos speech um and the incredible boldness um, and just the incredible truth, right? And if I'm remembering correctly, I think you were in in the in the room, right? You all were yes, having a absolutely a conversation. Um, but I think that is so emblematic of the moment that we are in of young people refusing not to be heard. Um, And saying to leaders, you have the power, you have the resources, you have the platforms, you have all of the capacity in the world to lead in this moment. So why aren't you doing it? And that at the end of the day, I think is where so much of of my work has, has now become anchored is recognizing that the climate crisis is a leadership crisis. Mm. There are so many people in positions of power who could be climate leaders today, right? Um, Not that you have to have it all figured out, but that you are willing to set goals where they need to be in accordance with what science tells us needs to be done. You are willing to lay serious plans and resource them to get to those outcomes. Um, and, And you're committed to doing all of it in a way that heals systemic injustices rather than deepening them. And I think my greatest hope is that what we see this decade is not just young people stepping into climate leadership, but people stepping into climate leadership from all directions, right where they are in the context that they are in, right? Um, And and I think that's so much of the work for us, right? Is welcoming people in, issuing the invitation, offering the collaboration, linking arms, um, and you know, and and building, as we like to say, building the we in all we can save. Yeah. Because right from where you are, as you say, yeah, right, from right where from where you are. And we have we have a cat who has yes uh, yes the name of the cat <laughs> is the name of the cat is Munchkin. Hi, he, Munchkin. Uh, <laughs> he adopted us this summer. Um, uh, he's our he's our new COVID addition. <laughs> you know, p- post COVID, I'm not just the children I'm going to miss, but the cats. I mean, really, particularly the way that they just all they want to do is get in front of a Zoom call. <laughs> they they have no sense of propriety, you know. <laughs> Are you trying to do something here? Sorry. So not sorry. Hugely serious people talking about serious things is this tail just makes its way across the, the screen like <laughs> yeah. a Loch Ness Monster. Oh, my goodness. Well, Catherine, thank you so much. How uh, how delightful. What a, um, what a thoughtful conversation. Thank you very much. What a thoughtful book. Um, you know, we usually end our podcast, usually very sadly, because we would like to continue the conversation, but we yeah. must bring it to a close. And we ask <laughs> our guests um, to place themselves somewhere in the space between outrage and optimism. We chose that title for our podcast because we believe that we need both. Um, but mm-hmm. we wake up every morning, you know, somewhere in a different place between those two. 
And, uh, and so we're quite conscious of that for ourselves and would love to know from you generally where not, you know, in, in addition to right now and today, generally, where do you place yourself in that spectrum between outrage at, uh, at where we are uh, and how late uh, we are at getting to the game and optimism on how much we can actually um, get done soon, very soon. Yeah. I think I really do live at a confluence of those. Um, I, I remember the first time I, I saw this, this name and I thought that's brilliant because um, I think it is the it is the reality of, of our days. Um, and, and it makes them fraught. (laughs) Um, and it also makes them exciting. Um, I think I have, I am very far on the outrage end of the spectrum when I think about how, how how rich the toolbox is Mm -hmm. and how very much we have refused to use it. How unused the toolbox is. Unused, (laughs) yes. Um, That's, you know, sometimes people would say, draw down, it's so hopeful. I'm like, or it's just a Shakespearean tragedy. (laughs) 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 Time time will tell. (laughs) Time will tell. Um, (laughs) And I feel, I think I feel, you know, it's, it's hard after the very dark, four years we had in, in the U S um, under the last administration, it's hard not to find myself on the optimism end of the spectrum um, because we've got so many incredible climate leaders in this administration who are incredibly diverse, um, bring lots of different perspectives and backgrounds to the table. Um, and, and I think now it is met by a movement that can help keep the flames of public support um, and demand going that is that is so needed. And most of the time I boil that down to courage um, that, you know, as you all all know, people love to say, are you hope are you know, are you hopeful? and And my feeling is sort of like, well, hope is kind of like what side of the bed did I wake up on that day? But like, courage, right? Kind of that like fire in the belly and, and, and fire in the heart in some ways. Um, I think you can have that any day, any day of the week. Um, and you can find it, especially if you've got amazing partners and community in this work. And I will say that has really transformed for me in recent years. And, um, and leaves me with a heck of a lot more courage for the work ahead. How beautiful, Catherine. Thank you so much. Mm. I was going to say amen, but then I remember my daughters always <laughs> correct me and they say, a women. <laughs> a women. <laughs> Amazing. Well, but thank you for fire in the heart. I hope Clay co- yeah. uh, names the episode after that. Yeah, and Ooh. ferocious love. I also love that term yeah. that comes from your book. Totally love it. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. It has Catherine. been truly, truly a uh, just a, a a wonderful journey of the heart and the soul. Thanks well, so much. I am I am such a ridiculous fan um, of all of yours. So <laughs> this um, I've been really looking forward to this and feel uh, humbled and and delighted to be included. Um, thank, oh, you. thank you. Thank, thank you. you to you. Great to talk to you. So Catherine is just one of the most 
beautifully eloquent people on this issue that I think uh, is there in our movement at the moment and so great she could join us this week. What did you guys leave that discussion with? What did us girls leave that discussion with? Absolutely. <laughs> Go, Paul. Um, I was I was stuck really by this notion of um, feminine leadership, the kind of integration of head and heart. It sounds like a kind of cliche, but actually this evidence that women legislators are more interested in environmental laws uh, and 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 better protection for uh, you know people and 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 our biosphere um just makes a lot of sense to me I, I i think some of the most sort of savage and inappropriate actions by the trump administration were really just to kind of increase short-term cash flow for business and i just think women are less inclined to put people at risk for short-term cash flow in fact it's just you know i, I don't want to sound too sort of cliched and and you know clearly there are kind of bad women and there are good men but you know just generally speaking um it's rubbish when men are running everything because they kind of, uh, you know, just uh, ignore the, the 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 priorities of the future for the uh, for the for the kind of greed of the present. Um, I've been bringing the conversation with Catherine together with um, a story that I have recently heard of Isaac Perlman's concert. Um, apparently. It's at personally one of the most amazing violinists. He has a physical impediment in walking. And um, he walked very awkwardly over the stage to sit down and start his violin concert, I think at Lincoln Center. And just as he was starting, one of the four violin strings broke. And so, of course, the orchestra conductor turned to get Perlman's indication of he was going to, what, ask for another string, get up, go get another string. What was he going to do? And Perlman apparently closed his eyes for a few seconds, then opened them again and motioned to the conductor to start over. And he played that entire piece with a violin of three strings, not four. And when he was asked about that, he said, sometimes artists are called upon to make beautiful music with what is left. And that sentence has stayed with me now for at least a week. And I'm bringing it together with Catherine's book, um, because I think there's such a sense in that book of grief, of despair at what we have lost, um, a very, very frank admission at what we have lost and what we will continue to lose, but also the firm determination to make beautiful music with what is left. And I think those two features of that book, to be courageous enough to admit the pain and the loss that we're all experiencing, but at the same time to have the firm determined conviction that we can still make beautiful music with what is left is such a powerful message for us as we are um, trying to figure out how, how do we move forward into this decisive decade. Wow, that's a beautiful story, Christiane. I absolutely love that. I'd never heard that before. And that's astonishing as a piece of performance on the violin and an amazing piece of philosophy. 
Um, I would completely agree with that. I love that. Um, the other thing I thought is, I mean, in the book that we wrote, Christiana, we, we really spent a lot of time talking about this idea of abundance and this mindset of abundance. And I thought that Catherine did a remarkable job of walking this line between the abundance of the future and the abundance of the feminine leadership and what all of that, everybody who's been left out of decision-making now coming into decision-making, the abundance that that can bring for the future, while also walking the line of facing the reality that there are only so many seats around the board table. And there is also a scarcity in certain elements of how the world is now. And we need to allow that abundance to meet that scarcity and permeate it so that it can, so that we can all reap the rewards of it and 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 see the benefit of that. And I just thought that was a real... Um, I thought it was actually intellectually very impressive that they were able to bring those two things together in such a coherent way uh, and really had the potential mm. to, 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 really, to really work for people. It really worked for me. It really helped me understand something that we need to face both of those things. Um, and it, I thought it was very compelling. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I admire, again, her, her courage and her frankness in saying, in order to bring more women to the table, some will have to leave the table. Yeah. That is not often expressed. No. We all, you know, assume that in order to bring more women, we just make the table bigger. Well, when we can, that's fantastic. Um, and that definitely is, is the way to go. But sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes there are only 12 seats on the board or there are only, you know, there is only one CEO per company. Yeah. Um, and uh, so sometimes someone will have to go. And I thought her story of, uh, of Bill McKibben st stepping down from um, 350.org was, was quite an impressive story. Again, admiration to Bill. I just had the privilege to discuss this briefly with Gro Harlan Brundtland at some event I met her. And I was talking about this, like, you know, kind of quota sort of for women. And she said, look, it's nothing to do with women. She said, it's about a preponderance of any one gender. She said, in Norway, hmm. we say no less than 40% of any one gender on any major committee. And yeah. then suddenly it's much simpler. Like this is not about, you know, some kind yeah. of, uh, I mean, yes, you, you can argue it's uh, about uh, a recognition of uh, gender inequality. But if you formulate it simply by saying committees that are have too much of any one gender are going to make bad decisions, I completely agree with that. And that makes perfect sense. And we should implement it everywhere immediately. Why not? You know what? If it was the other way around, the men would say, implement this immediately. So why don't we just implement it immediately? <laughs> Absolutely. I like that phrasing as well. That's really nice. So, and, and one other thing, I mean, we've, you know, we have come from, uh, from this episode where we've explored this amazing, this amazing book, All We Can Save, and actually International Women's Day coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, and one thing we should point to, people who are interested in understanding more about women's leadership, female leadership, um, that can inspire you is to look at Science Moms. Uh, Which is incredibly cool, by the way. It is incre a full stamp of incredibly cool endorsement from Paul Dickinson. Uh, Science Moms, a non-partisan group of climate scientists and mothers dedicated to empowering other mums to talk to their children about climate change, acknowledging that mums are an overlooked but incredible force for change in every arena, including climate. Um, and Science Moms provides content and calls to action to mobilise mums to speak out and act on the climate crisis. Extremely cool. Another very cool women-led and uh, women-built 
um, alliance and group is Moms uh, Clean Air Force. Yeah. Um, and, and, and quite fun that we're talking about um, security on this podcast. The Moms uh, Clean Air Force is, is a group of moms that are concerned about the air quality that their children are exposed to and are being very eloquent and very compelling in bringing together local pollution and planetary pollution and helping everyone to understand that to a large extent they are one and the same and that uh, going beyond fossil fuels will help with both. Um, but it's a, it's a wonderful play on words for them to call themselves the mums. Um, clean Air Force. Air Force. Clean Air Force. <laughs> I love it. If I, if I was, was going to be rescued by the Mums Clean Air Force or Donald Trump's Space Force, I would go for the Mums Clean Air Force any day of the week. <laughs> so this brings us to the end of another episode of Outrage Autism. But of course, we still have some music for you. So this uh-huh. week... Who do we have? Who do we have? Desiree Dawson with Mountaintops. Desiree Dawson is a yoga teacher, recording artist and songwriter from Vancouver in British Columbia. And as ever, we will hear from her about this song, what makes it a song with a purpose... We'll leave you with her. Hope you enjoy it. And we will see you next week. Thanks for being here. Bye. Bye. I think it's really important that artists engage with their medium in a way that it's authentic, uh, that the content that they're bringing forward is relevant to what's going on in their world, what they're processing, uh, what they're seeing, what they're observing. And as artists, it's kind of our, I guess, our role to take all those things and then translate them into ways that can be integrated and absorbed and understood by those who are viewers or listeners of of that medium. So with music, I, I really believe it's such a healer, it's such a medicine and in so many ways, whether it can get you feeling and processing and crying or dancing or connecting or loving. Um, there's just so many, so many things there. And to me, all of those things are necessary for any kind of social change, for any kind of uh, shift that we're looking for on this planet. We, we need to be more connected to ourselves and to everyone around us. I am a firm believer in the fact that all of us have our own set of gifts that we were brought in this world with. We have our own wisdom to share with each other. And a lot of times, a lot of us are scared to really step into the versions of ourselves that is able to share those gifts. And so this song is a reminder that you, whoever is listening to this right now, has those gifts too. And it's just about being connected enough to ourselves to really discover what those are and then having the courage and the bravery to you know sing it on the top of the mountaintops or say hey this is who i am and be really proud of that who are you leaving the lights on for and how long do you plan on waiting How much more electricity do you plan on wasting because you're looking so burnt out? But you have the choice, and when you meet your voice, the mountaintops await your arrival. survival the mountains await your arrival like ooh, sing it from the mountains
mountains Do you, do you know who you are? Do you, do you know who you're becoming? Do you, do you know who you are? Do you, do you know who you're becoming? Cause you have the choice and when you meet your voice The mountain tops await your aisle Your fullness and not just survival The mountains await your arrival like go another episode of outrage and optimism this week the artist that you heard was desiree dawson with her song mountaintops a really cool fact about her she won cbc music's 2016 searchlight competition it's a really big deal it's canada's annual search for the best undiscovered voice in the country and i really loved watching her finale performance which is on youtube and so i've included it in the show notes for you all to enjoy as well uh she plays a baritone ukulele and you know i just think that's the best ukulele i'm opinionated i know uh as always i've got links to desiree's music socials and such in the show notes So go buy her music and give her a follow. Okay, Outrage and Optimism is a global optimism production. Our executive producer is Marina Mancilia-German, and our producer is Clay Carnell. Global Optimism is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Laura Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sue Reed, Sharon Johnson, and John Ward. And our hosts are Christiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and Tom Rivet-Karnak. Thank you so much to our guest this week, Catherine Wilkinson. If you don't already have a copy of her latest anthology with fellow Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, it's titled All We Can Save, and it's time for you to pick up a copy. I've got a link in the show notes to that, as well as her other incredible books that Tom mentioned just before the interview, and a link to her podcast, A Matter of Degrees. But amazing people never stop at just great books and podcasts. Catherine and Ayana launched the All We Can Save project, which aims to accelerate the success of the climate movement by providing focused support and community building for women climate leaders. I can't recommend checking this out enough. And how do you get involved? Well, they have a cooler, like extended remix version of a book club as they've self-described it, but also you can donate, you can sign up for their email list, you can buy a friend the book and spread the word. So let's go. Allwecansave.earth, go there. Links in the show notes. And speaking of cool projects, in less than two weeks, the world will mark International Women's Day on the 8th of March. 
If you want more leadership to inspire you, look no further than Science Moms. We mentioned it earlier in the episode, but Science Moms is a nonpartisan group of climate scientists and mothers dedicated to empowering other moms to talk to their children about climate change, especially when it comes to changing the narrative of climate change from doom and despair to one that reveals an opportunity to help create the world that they want to raise their children in. Um, you can go to sciencemoms.com. You can go to at science underscore moms on the gram. But, you know, why type when you can click? I've got you a link to both in the show notes. So go check them out. And of course, we would not be a podcast without asking you to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, We read every single review, as I say, and we have begun reading some of your reviews on the podcast. So it just takes a few minutes, write something for us, give us a rating. Thank you for joining us in spreading the stubborn optimism. And last, but certainly not least, we are online and active at Global Optimism on all social media channels. Uh, except for TikTok, but Christiana is notorious for dancing, so I think we might be able to change that up soon. Send us a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and hey, maybe we'll give you a shout out on the show. Okay, that is a wrap on episode number 90. If you have not already, hit subscribe to join us next week. But in the meantime, enjoy the next podcast in your queue. See you. See you.